Agents Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Chime. Chime offers an award-winning sales acceleration platform built for the real estate industry. Powered by artificial intelligence, Chime delivers the data insights agents and teams need to make the most out of the leads they already have and to get to a close faster. Through an expanding partner network, Chime's easy-to-use conversion platform also delivers quality sales-ready leads from the get-go. It eliminates time-consuming manual tasks and helps agents focus on what matters most, building their network, servicing clients, and growing the bottom line. To learn more about how Chime can help you, visit www.chime.me or call 833-682-4463. Welcome back, Lab Coat Nation, to another episode of the Lab Coat Agents Podcast. And today, we are going to talk about a topic that, for some reason or another, seems to elude most realtors. And I don't know why. You have a first-class ticket to properties. So why do more realtors not get involved in the rental market? And more specifically, we're going to talk and go deep on vacation rental markets and how you could be creating another revenue stream, another avenue uh, for growing your business with our guest today, who bought her first rental property at the ripe old age of 26 on a $37,000 a year salary, mind you. She wasn't wealthy by any means, uh, and she has continued to grow her business, grow her portfolio to where she's now a millionaire in her low 30s. I would have guessed 29 tops by looking at you. Most (laughs) of you are listening, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Avery Carl. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So Avery, let's obviously assume that our audience has never heard of you. So tell our audience who you are, where you come from, and you know how you've kind of built your business to where you are today, where so many of us try to go and never make. Sure. So uh, my name is Avery Carl. I kind of fell into the real estate business. I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a real estate agent. I wanted to be a rock star. And uh, so... <laughs> Well, you're a rock star uh, realtor now. <laughs> <laughs> That'll work. So uh, I, my husband and I moved to Tennessee from New York City uh, in 2013. I was at, at that point, I was working on the marketing management side of the music business, and uh, which pays basically nothing, by the way, because it's glamorous. You get paid in being able to say that you work in the music business. And um, I very quickly, after I finished my master's degree, learned about myself that I am a terrible employee. So we, when we moved to Tennessee before I had my license, uh, our agent at the time was trying to get us to buy in a really hip, fast appreciating part of Nashville. We didn't want to do that because we were moving from New York. We were sick of neighbors. We wanted to buy something out in the country in Tennessee and be left alone. So we did do that, but we decided to take a little bit of her advice and thought, well, maybe we should buy a rental property in that area and see how that goes. And we had no idea what we were doing. Don't ever just go off and buy a rental property without educating yourself. But we did that. Luckily, it ended up being really successful. We still have that one, just a regular old long-term rental. And at that point, we thought, okay, this is cool. We would like to build some more passive income and maybe scale this into a side business. And uh, how can we do that? Because we only had one single family home worth of a down payment left. 
So we thought, okay, well, what can we do here to, what can we buy with this that will then turn into, that will cash flow the hardest so that we can go buy more of these quickly. And we landed on short-term rentals. We didn't want to do that in Nashville because the short-term rental regulations just change constantly. They're pretty volatile. Didn't want to get involved with that. So we went over to the Smoky Mountains, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge area, about three hours east of Nashville, and uh, where it's totally, it's been a vacation rental market for decades, well before Airbnb, even the internet. So the city's figured out a long time ago how to monetize that. You don't ever have to worry about them regulating against short-term rentals. It'd be way too detrimental to the local economy. So super safe place to do it. Again, ran off and bought something without having any idea what we were doing, didn't know anybody doing it, didn't have any mentorship at all. And that one became pretty successful pretty quickly, scaled that into five of them within about a year and a half. Four or five years later, we have 32 units. They're not all short-term rentals. Some of them are long-terms. We're working on a 20-unit multi right now. And um, I fell into actually having my license, A, because my husband is a terrible client and I felt horrible for all the agents that we worked with. It was, it was embarrassing. And number two, <laughs> uh, so I could do my own deals. So, uh, And what grew out of that was friends saying, oh, how much are you making on that cabin in the Smokies? Teach me how to do this. So it just went from helping friends buy cabins to helping clients buy cabins. And then uh, it became a real business. And I was able to quit my corporate gig after our second short-term rental and get my license and do real estate full-time. And I'm a really big proponent of real estate agents building that second income stream through investing in real estate, because you never know what the market's going to do. And um, you always want to have a good, you know, we don't get 401ks. So it's a really good, really good thing to invest in that you have kind of an inside knowledge of. It's almost like insider trading, but it's okay to do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot to unpack right there and several questions that I have. But one is that you backed into real estate and we're talking to you realtors. I don't think there's probably too many listeners that aren't real estate professionals of some kind, right? And you took the obvious segue of the music industry into real estate because <laughs> that's an obvious segue, of course. Uh, but what I love about what you've done is that if you guys are doing any math in your head, I said that she bought her first one at 26. She became a millionaire by 31. She's only 32 now. I'm not a mathematician, but that's less than six years that you've now built this portfolio. And in other words, it's not too late. But my question to you to start is this. You know, you, uh, another obvious segue, went from New York City to Tennessee, because everybody <laughs> does that, of course, um, which Tennessee is an awesome place, Nashville especially, and Gatlinburg actually is amazing. The Smoky Mountains are a great place to vacation. But when we think of vacation rentals, most think Southern California, they think of Florida, they think of just, you know, the typical Tahoe and, you know, Colorado and those kind of places. And I think there's more opportunity abound than a lot of people realize. And that was my first question to you off the air was, you know, does this conversation apply to anyone that isn't in any of those markets, which there's a far more, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. This is not a second home rental market, but there are, there is Branson, there is the Lake of the Ozarks, there are places around. And so let's let's squash that as we, before we get into this conversation for anybody thinking to themselves yeah i'm like jeff i'm in a nothing market how can i capitalize on this how do you how do you react to that there's a few ways you can capitalize on it i mean if you want to try and do the short term rental thing 
think about areas that are just a weekend vacation outside of your metro market. Uh, and I know a lot of agents refer things out that are over 45 minutes away. The entire first two years of my career, I drove back and forth three hours each way from the Smokies to Nashville to show properties. I, I was able to condense clients into like one or two days to where I don't only have to go twice a week. But I, I drove myself out there and did a lot of work. And some of the agents were much more welcoming of me than others. And some of them were like, what are you doing? I was working hard is what I was doing. So if you have to drive an hour and a half or two hours uh, to get that inventory, because it's a tough market right now, then do it. There's no excuse not to, uh, unless you're busy enough that you don't need to. But the other way to do it, if you, if you don't want to focus on like a vacation home type investment is, so what, what is a good investment in your market? Uh, are there a lot of apartment buildings that are in good areas of town that might rent well? Are there a lot of apartment buildings that need work? There are a ton of investors out there who that's exactly what they're looking for is an apartment building that they can rehab one unit as a, at a time and add value to. Or are there a lot of single family homes that, uh, you know, maybe the mortgage on them 20% down would be 500 bucks a month, but they're going to rent for 1500, 2500 a month. You know, it, there's, you just have to figure out what the best investment in your market is because there is one, uh, figure out what that is. And then you, you can capitalize on that. What, like if you live in a college town, college rentals, great thing. So every town has something or the town next door to you has something. If your personal town does not, you just have to figure out what that is and how you can get into investing in it. So let me ask you this, you know, you mentioned that, and, and this might be an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, that you had gotten your, your first was a long-term rental. You still own it today, uh, but that doesn't create enough revenue to create enough, you know, money to have more down payment to buy more properties. I don't want to assume the obvious here, but what is the biggest advantage to the short-term rental versus the long-term rental that creates more revenue? They, so you can make roughly, depending on the market and the size of the property, between three and five to seven more times in cash flow than a comparable long term rental. Now, the thing about where I invest is that there are more short term rentals than there are people who live there. And it's entirely possible. If something were to come along and wipe out the entire short term rental market in that market, it's very unlikely that I'd be able to convert it to a long-term. So if you're going to invest in a true vacation market like that, you need to understand that. However, we did just have an absolute worst case scenario with coronavirus and we broke even for the months that the national park was shut down. And then the tourism was like, bam, right back, picked right back up where it started, where it left off. So, but if you're investing in a metro market, then you do have the option to be able to convert that into a long-term if something were to ever happen. So uh, the answer, the very long answer to your question is uh, the cash flow is just higher. I, and I don't think everybody knows that. I'm sure there are many agents that do, but uh, that's why I asked the question because that is a hell of an opportunity. And then again, going back to the first question, which was, I don't think a lot of agents even think, like you said, they just automatically refer it out. And I, give me a metro area and you can find a vacation market within a three hour radius. I, I, it's, I would argue to say probably everywhere, right? And so there's opportunity around, you're just not thinking about it. So when an agent thinks to themselves or says to, to you, you know, I do refer it out, why would I bother? 
Uh, I, 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 I think I know what you're going to say here, but what is your answer to that? Because like you said, you put the time and the effort into this. And so most, let's be honest, most agents are not too busy. They, they don't, they have time. That's one thing they have on their hands. Uh, so they don't have an objection, but what about the agent who is busy? Like, how do they, how do they overcome that? Say, man, you're right. I need to be doing this, but I don't have the time to be driving three hours at a time. So what can I do to crack into this knowing that I just can't go visit these properties? You could hire a showing assistant that lives closer and you don't have to be like the investment agent to make investments. So you do need to stick to your strengths. And for me, it just happened. So happened that my strengths happened to be three hours away. So that's what I had to do. But if your strength is selling, you know, farming your immediate area right around your home, then great. (laughs) You have it easier than I did. But I was just, you know, I was a brand new agent and that's where my business was coming in. And so that is the opportunity that, that I took. I love it. I love it. So let's get into some of the, some of the more normal normal questions. You know, so how does one choose the best market to invest in? Is it, is it, is it just proximity? Um, you mentioned that you're in three different markets. Why don't you share what markets you're in and then tell our, our listeners, like, how do they, how do they find, how do they determine where the best place to invest is? Well, depending on the asset class, uh, luckily there are a lot of places, you know, a lot of data online that you can just go on and look without having to come up with all of this independently. I came up, came to my conclusions independently, just based on in terms of short term, specifically places that I vacationed with my family growing up where people, where we rented a house or a condo and not a hotel, because those are the areas where there's going to be little, very little hotel presence where your regulations are going to be friendly. And where if, if you're doing that, most of the tourists are probably doing that as well. And that's probably going to be a pretty decent market. However, there's lots of data now. There wasn't really when I started where you can, I mean, you can just do a Google search. There are rented.com has a top 20 best places to invest in short-term rentals list every year. And Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge are always right at the top of it. Uh, Destin, Florida, where my other rental is, is always in the top five. So um, it's, really just a quick, a quick Google search away. And then you just want to verify that independently after you, after you read through. But if you're looking to invest in somewhere a little closer to home, there's also tons of lists about best places to invest in single families, best places to invest in multifamily or small multifamily. Cause you can do a, an FHA or primary home loan on anything up to four units. So maybe you start that way. That's called house hacking. So Uh, You know, you could go buy a four unit, live in one unit and rent out the other three and you don't have rent all of a sudden. And then now you have income. Not only do you not have a mortgage to pay, it's being paid by your tenants. You also have income on top of that that you can then use and go invest in other things. So it really just depends on where you are in the country, how far away you are comfortable going with your investment, or if you want to keep it close to home, uh, you know, what asset class in your hometown is going to be the best option. What is your, what is your number one strategy for finding these? Are you going through uh, mm-hmm. portals or are you, you Googling where, where, how are you finding them? How the ones that I've bought mm-hmm. in terms of how am I finding the market or how am I how finding are you the finding? No, the actual properties then. So the first couple were right on the MLS. I bought a lot of them right off the MLS because the thing about vacation home uh, areas is that for things to be, become distressed generally 
you would have to, people are going to sell off their second homes and their investment properties well before it gets to their doorstep of their primary home. And then their property is distressed and they have to sell it for a discount. So I found a lot on the MLS, a lot from just, I sell so many of them that I have a lot of relationships with investors who are ready to sell. And then my one in Florida was actually a foreclosure and we had to do a, a full rehab on it. Wow. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned the word, I think you did, uh, mature vacation rental market. What does that mean? So a mature vacation rental market, I kind, I kind of touched on it earlier, is a market where it is is and has been the normal thing for people to do when they go on vacation there to rent a privately owned single family condo or cabin property. Where you're, When you're going on vacation to these places, you're generally not staying in a hotel. Got it. And, and, and why is that type of market preferable over a non-mature? I guess, would that be called a young one? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so uh, the mature ones, the, so the difference is not necessarily how old the market is, but how long it's been a normal thing for people to rent privately owned properties. So like Gatlinburg, that's always been the thing that people do. They go to Gatlinburg and they rent a cabin. Whereas in Nashville, for example, everybody has always rented hotels until Airbnb came along 15 years ago. So that would not be a mature market because uh, like Gatlinburg, where they have figured out how to do the taxes, the local occupancy tax, all of that years and years and years ago, Nashville is just now starting to have these clashes with the people who live there and the people who own the short-term rentals that are in their neighborhoods. Also, now that the short-term rental business is, is big business in Nashville, you have the hotel lobbies that are super against it, all kinds of city council goings on and rezonings and things being outlawed. And it's just a mess because it's new. Yeah. Where in these other markets, it's been around for a long time. So it's just business as usual. Sounds to me like you're talking about markets where, like a metro market where there's more owner occupants, It that's typically going to be a younger one, aka just a more challenging one. Because I mean, even in St. Louis, for example, you can't just go buy most of the condos downtown don't allow short-term rentals, uh, which I know most of you are familiar with. And I guess that probably has a lot to do with it as well. And But you mentioned Airbnb. And there's VRBO and there's other outlets and whatnot. So when it comes to, you know, I guess we're kind of jumping straight ahead here, but when it comes to buying these and then renting them, what is the best strategy for marketing the property then? Uh, do you use Airbnb, VRBO and those other platforms? Do you use a good old fashioned Craigslist or local media outlets? What do you, what do, you do? What do you recommend? I recommend a mix of Airbnb and VRBO. There are plenty of other platforms that you can use too, but we've, and we've tried a number of them over the years, but I found that we stay so booked on just those two major ones that we don't complicate our lives with trying to add a bunch of extra stuff. So, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to the very beginning here, which I know there's going to be this objection, which is down payment. Uh, do you have any suggestions for anybody? Because typically uh, there are loan options out there, but financing is going to be challenging. And, and so that leads to obviously one down payment. Like if I'm struggling with a down payment, are there other options for financing? And just two in general, like, what do you suggest in terms of financing? Because I'm actually in the mortgage space and I know that investment property loans are much more challenging and much harder to qualify for than a primary or even a secondary. 
and so what kind of advice or what kind of experiences do you have that you can lend to people on that? A conventional investment loan, 20% down is the normal thing that people usually do. Uh, there are some commercial, especially for short terms, there are some commercial options. One is called Host Financial. That is specific. It's a commercial lender that is specifically geared towards short-term rental properties because that can be a little bit of a hurdle. I mean, if you're buying something that you're going to, like a, a quad or something where you're going to occupy one unit, you can put down as little, I mean, you know better than it I do. Becomes as a second, as it becomes a second home, yeah. Yeah, or uh, what some people do if they're planning to self-manage their properties, and this, of course, will depend on the rules of the lender. This is not financial advice or lending advice from me, but what I have seen done is uh, the 10% down vacation home loan. People will do that if they plan to self-manage it and if it's 65 miles away from their primary and they intend to stay in it for more than 14 days or for 14 days a year-ish is the general rule, I think is the Fannie rule. Uh, so that's another one that people use to kind of get creative to get into one. But you do, again, there are some stipulations that you have to follow per Fannie guidelines on that. Just make sure you're actually using it for what you intend. Just don't exactly. lie. Go, go back and mention that uh, company that you mentioned again and tell us a little bit more about that. So you mentioned the, uh, I, I forgot what the name of it is already. So tell me again, that was, that, that does, that focuses on short-term rental properties. Oh, it's called Host, H-O-S-T Financial. And they take a look at what the property should be able to make as a short-term rental and lend based on the potential income rather than, you know, your, your traditional conventional, you know, DTI and things like that. Is there, is this like a commercial product and do they lend uh, only to individuals or can you do LLCs? It is a commercial product and they will lend to individuals or LLCs. That's a very good point because a lot of people, when they go to invest in stuff, they want to do an LLC. But if you're going to do conventional financing, you yeah. have to put it in your own name. It's not going to work. So yeah. great question. What kind of terms does somebody like, does it, does a service like this do offer? It's generally going to be 20 to 25% down. The terms are obviously for a commercial, never going to be as good as conventional. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the last time I looked, it was around 5% interest. Uh, so a lot of people will do that to start off and then maybe refinance down the road. They're generally not, you know, like a 30 year fixed or anything. It's going to be an arm. So arm or even a balloon maybe. Yeah, that too. So uh, they have a bunch of different products. I have not actually used them. I've gone conventional on all of mine or cash. So uh, it's definitely something to look into though, if you want to get into the short-term rental space. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, and as a mortgage professional who has invested in many properties, including commercial properties, I very rarely lend on myself just because it's, it's more complicated. I like using a local bank uh, because it's more of a handshake type deal. They don't, they don't follow Fannie and Freddie guides, which although you're going to get better terms, if you're buying right, a 3% versus a 5% doesn't make a massive difference. Like I, it, it creates the opportunity. And if that, if that stops me from having an opportunity, then was it worth it or was, is it worth it to find the opportunity? And, and like you said, you can buy these with the less favorable terms and then turn around a year or two later and refinance it, especially if you're in a good equity position. And I, I love that strategy. That's awesome. Okay. So, so you, that's, that's good. I'm glad you shared that because you've done it the quote unquote right way, which is my assumption is that, is, is that, is that because you could, or is that because that's just a, a philosophy, a personal philosophy? Like I want to do it with the 20% down. Is there, is there some sort of a strategy or, or a reason behind the reason why you've done it that way? 
because obviously the more you can put down, the more it's going to create more, it's going to create more cash flow. Um, is, is there anything behind that or is it just by, by, by circumstance, you've just been fortunate? Uh, I've been, it's a combination of having been fortunate and then there's been situations where I just needed to offer cash to win the deal and then finance it later. So, um, it's just been a combination of things. Okay. And, and so you've mentioned, obviously you, you don't, you own in markets that you don't live in. And right. I, I don't think we've talked about management of the property. Do you, do you recommend hiring management companies? Do you recommend managing on your own? And what sort of terms should someone be seeking or can they even seek that sort of thing? Is that pretty much dictated by the market that you're buying in when it comes to management? Well, two different types of properties. So for my long-term properties, 10% manager all day long. That's what I want. I like that. It's easy. And it's not 10% of a long-term is not that much. Short terms, however, the managers charge a significantly more amount of a significant more amount. So if you've got most of the managers charge between right around 25% of your gross income, not your net. So that's before any of your expenses. A few years ago, it used to be closer to 40, but they've kind of, with the way technology has been and people able to charge less, has kind of come down. But 25% of your gross is the average. Uh, and I think the reason that the the more traditional property managers for short-term rentals and vacation rentals have had to come down is because the ability of people to self-manage remotely from anywhere. So uh, most of the people that I know in the space do self-manage uh, just because most of the people that I know in the space are also trying to squeeze out every last dollar of the property so that they can build a decent sized portfolio and giving 25% to a manager is not the way to do that. And the way that that technology is nowadays, it's really just a few apps on your phone, a few platforms to help kind of streamline things. And that's really it. I mean, one property self-managing remotely is only about 30 minutes a week. Which you brought up a good point though. So management of a property can mean receiving phone calls at all hours of every day. And it can mean dealing with, you know, damaged property, damaged whatever, right? Within the property. Is, is it, when you say you can do that through an app, are you talking about there are apps that basically align you with, you know, handymen and, and cleaners and that sort of thing? There are not. So you will be communicating with your guests through the platform messaging system, whether that be Airbnb or VRBO, you want to keep everything on the messaging system. So if there is some kind of a dispute, then the powers that be can see that. And um, so you really just need in any market that your two core people are going to be your cleaner and your handyman or handy person, and you can build everyone else out from there. So, you know, if you need a roofer, one of them is going to know a roofer. One of them is going to know uh, an HVAC tech. So uh, you're really just working through the Airbnb and VRBO apps most of the time. And you aren't going to get as many middle of the night calls as you probably would assume. I think that's a big limiting belief of people that are interested in investing in long terms as well. They think, oh, I would never do that because I don't want to fix toilets. Well, you're not going to fix a toilet. If a toilet breaks in my property that is 2,000 miles away from here, I'm going to do the same exact thing as if a toilet next door, like in the room next to me breaks, is I'm going to call somebody. So it's the same exact thing. You're calling somebody to come fix it regardless. So it's really just training your mind to kind of let go of the control a little bit and just make a phone call and have things done rather than thinking you have to do everything yourself. 
What is an expectation that is set with the user of the property though? So if the toilet breaks, what is, is there an expectation that you set forth in the rules that say, you know, uh, we'll have somebody out within 24 hours. Is it within so six hours? What is it? It's ASAP. So if it's a situation where a toilet breaks and it's leaking water all over the floor, that's an emergency. We would obviously try to get someone out there immediately. Uh, but if a toilet breaks and, you know, the handle's just kind of loose, but it's working fine, is that's a little less of a fire drill. So that's going to be, we'll get you somebody as soon as possible. Maybe it'll be right now. But, you know, if it's not an emergency, it's not an emergency. And I, so I guess that goes back to the phone call in the middle of the night. Really, it just comes down to, even though it may not happen often, as you suggest, it does and can happen. So you have to decide, do you want to squeeze out every penny and deal with the headaches that come with that? Or do you want to hire a management company and pay out 25% so you don't have to deal with it? And, and I asked that question kind of selfishly, just because I want to know, because the last time I was checking into short-term rentals, which was Key West, which might be slightly different because it's a pretty unique market. Uh, but I want to say they were 35 and 40%. And maybe it's come down since then. I don't know. Um, but just 25% actually sounds really good to me because I've heard much higher. Mm-hmm. And there are some big national property managers that are in a lot of markets now that have kind of forced that because in Gatlinburg, 40% was the standard even as recently as five years ago, but like there's a company called turnkey one called evolve. That's only 10%. It's a little, it's not full. It's kind of more of an a la carte kind of thing than a full service hands-off management. But a lot of those big companies that are either private equity, equity backed, they have a lot of money to do a lot of marketing, to get a lot of clients, which is taking away from the local guys. So they've got to do something to compete. And that is bringing their prices back down to, to compete with those, the bigger guys. Hey, better for all of us, right? Better for all of the investors. That's awesome. Although although on one side of the coin, you could argue that that's going to affect the real estate industry as well, which it is. There is some benefit because it's helping on the other side of the coin. So let's, let's, uh, let's break down some hypotheticals on, on profit. I think people need to know, like, what are we talking about here? So I guess use yourself as the example. You know, you've got Gatlinburg, you've got the panhandle of Florida, and I think you said you've got Alabama, which is kind of just off of of the panhandle. Uh, In those markets, which are very common, especially the panhandle, a very popular second home, short-term rental market, what kind of profits can someone, or what should they expect? What should they be looking to turn in order to make it the right investment? So there are a few metrics that are most commonly used when assessing short-term rental potential income. One of them is expressing the income as a percentage of the purchase price. So if you can get 10% of the purchase price, that's eh, like a base hit. Uh, If you can get anything between 10 and 20, that's pretty good, like worth worth buying probably. And if you can get 20% of the purchase price in gross income, then that's considered a a home run. Gross, Gross annual. Gross 20% annual, of the annual. Yes. Yes. Got it. So that's the way you should be looking at it from a, from a 30,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. How much can you get annually? But then how do you, how do you actually, how do you determine this? Like, where are you getting the metrics or the data from to determine how many months out of the year that you can realistically uh, be occupied? A combination of a few things. So even if you're not planning to necessarily use a property manager, it can be beneficial to get some projections from some of the bigger ones. 
And then also just getting on the Airbnb and VRBO platforms, I call it the enemy method. You go on and look in the neighborhood that you are planning to buy at comparable properties that are similar to yours and say, okay, well, what's, what's this person charging per night? Uh, what's, you can't see their obviously annual revenue or occupancy rate. You can only see what's right in front of you for like the next 90 days, but you can get a pretty good idea of what they're charging on the weekends, on the weekdays, what the average cleaning fee is and things like that. So you can kind of get, and you can also take a look at their reviews that will give you a decent idea of how booked it is and the seasonality because you you can see the date of each review and not every guest is going to review, but most of them do, at least on Airbnb. So you can kind of get a gauge of how often people are staying there, but it's definitely, you know, taking a look at your neighbors to see what they're doing. So where, where do you go or how do you find out um, an occupancy speculation? There's got to be a way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some, some short-term rental specific data companies out there. They're not perfect, but they're all right. AirDNA is one. Their mash visor is another one. A lot of the big, the big national property managers have a lot of data like that because they have so much money. They can just, you know, they have access to data and tools that we don't as just regular people. So uh, it's, you kind of just have to get as many data points as possible rather than just taking, you know, the rental history, for example, taking that at face value, because that is the end of the day, a variable. It's just what one random person or manager has been able to do with one property. So you need to get as many data points as you can to get a really good picture of what something should probably do. Do you ever extract that data from local realtors? Uh, Not usually because most of them don't have it. They don't even have any speculation. Yeah. I mean, the vast majority of agents aren't investors at all. So even, you know, zooming into one market, that's even, even less agents are going to be investors. So if you can find an agent that does have their own properties, that's probably going to be your best bet for if you're trying to buy something, you know, you want to buy something from someone who has them as well and has been in your position for sure. What about management companies in the local market? Yeah, you can definitely get, get some, some information from them too. They're willing to share that type of thing. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't. I was just curious. Yeah, they're willing to share it because they they want you to hire them. So, you know, they're going to give you really great customer service and answer all your questions because maybe you're going to decide that you like them and I'll just put my property with you. You know, it's capitalism. Yeah. yeah. What about, um, do you, do you um, w- so when you're doing this, this kind of data search and you're trying to determine, you know, the ROI or the potential ROI, do you have any, like, what do you follow? So like, obviously you go get this data from a, wherever, an aggregator or, or, or from a, a local source. And they tell you, well, you know, you could probably expect to have this occupied based on last year, 75% of the year. And so, you know, you're, you're trusting their word on this. Do you ever, do you say to yourself, okay, cool. I'm going to get the data. It comes out on average of 75%. I'm going to build my, my analysis around, I'm going to take 10% off that just to be safe. Or do you just work off of what you have when you're trying to, uh, trying to anticipate? It's always good to be conservative for sure. And I always try to run my own analysis, you know, based on my own experience of things and, and what my other properties have been able to do. But if you're a newbie, I definitely run your numbers on the conservative side. And like I said, just get, get as much information from as many people as you can and, see. And, and honestly, when I first started, I went on Airbnb and messaged all my neighbors to see 
if there was any, you know, if they could give me any insight and have they liked having this property? Has it been a good idea? Have, was it the worst mistake they've ever made? And most of them would like tell me to get lost and say, I'm not telling you anything about my business, which tells me that it was good. Yeah. Uh, so ever we got maybe one person to respond to us and she had been managing her properties from Memphis, which is even further from the Smokies than we were. And she'd been doing it on her own. And for some reason, I don't know why in the world she took time out of her day to talk to me several days, but she did. So uh, it goes back to the enemy method. If you can get any of those other owners to talk to you, do it. That's interesting. I was going to ask you, that was my next question was like, how many people actually were forthcoming about that? I mean, not many. <laughs> that's in my DNA, but I guess most humans, it's not in their DNA. I guess they, it's a scarcity mindset, I guess. I don't know. It is for sure. Interesting. Uh, or they don't, I mean, cause the, the properties, they, I guess my only fear in doing that is that, are you opening the door for that other owner to be like, Oh, that one's for sale. I didn't even notice it. I'm going to go try to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that. Or, you know, maybe you don't tell them the address. Got it. Oh, I like that. I like the, yeah. approach. <laughs> I, I guess it, it, it might be in vain, you know, it might, mm -hmm. it, it can be for sure. An exercise in futility, but what, what do you have to lose? Yeah. A little yeah. bit of time. I love it. Well, Amy, what, what kind of in, in, in summary and in, in closing, uh, what would you like to share with our audience just in terms of this entire conversation, which has been very enlightening by the way. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad it, hopefully it's provided some value. Yeah. I would say uh, a lot of agents live commission to commission. And, uh, it's, it's really important to at least have something that is making you money. So I, I don't buy real estate as a retirement plan. I buy it as an extra source of income so that I can go buy more real estate with it so that when I do retire, if that ever happens, then, you know, you have all of this income and it's not just, you know, something that's sitting in a bank somewhere that you have to, that you're just taking off a little bit at a time that you're able to live on. You know, it, you need to be building some wealth. You have insider access to the biggest wealth building tool there is. And it's, you definitely need to, to take advantage of that. Do you, do you act one last question? Do you act as the buyer's agent for yourself then? And then just, just uh, take that commission and put it back into the deal basically. Oh yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah. And I know some agents who, if it's a competitive situation, then I won't. But if it's just something that, you know, that we had time to negotiate on it and it wasn't a multiple offer situation because everything, I mean, let's be real, everywhere in the country right now is a multiple offer situation. Uh, yeah. But if, if it's not like that, I 100% take that commission. And, and, you know, it's almost like you're only putting, putting down a fraction of the down payment than you would have been otherwise. So I definitely advise taking either way. You can use it to your advantage basically. Cause like you mm -hmm. said, in a competitive offer situation, it just basically gives you more leverage to essentially offer more. Right. Right. I love it. I love it. Well, awesome. Avery, this has been amazing. So if anybody says, you know what, gosh, this is a wealth of knowledge. I love what you've done. I love that you've done it at such a young age. I love that you've done it in such a short time. I want to connect with you. How do they find you? My email address and my phone number are right on my website at theshorttermshop.com. Theshorttermshop.com. Uh, and they can email you. Your, your cell phone's on there. Yeah, it's an app, so I can turn it off at nighttime. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll see it in the morning for sure. But email, text, the it's textable, call. This is awesome. Yeah. The shorttermshop.com. Avery, I really appreciate you uh, being so willing to share. Uh, I think this is excellent information. I think this is, as going back to the intro, folks, if you're not investing 
This is for you. This is what you should be doing. You have, you have the expertise based on what you do for a living uh, to, to leverage and use this to build more wealth and maybe, maybe build retirement, maybe build an extra stream of, of, of income, maybe just go get yourself a second home that you can have paid for by the, you know, for the, all the times that you, by renting it and the times you don't use it. There's so many avenues you can take this. I don't know why we don't talk about this more, but I'm glad we have you had you on Avery. Thank you so much for being on and go check her out at the shorttermshop.com. And uh, Avery, uh, let's stay in touch. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Lab Coat Nation. Don't forget every Thursday we are adding episodes dedicated to helping you grow your business with social media. We call it Drunk on Social, and our goal is to help you stay ahead of social media trends and get the latest news and strategies that are working for other agents. Tune in this Thursday and let us know what you think. This episode of Lab Code Agents Podcast is brought to you by Link U. That's L-I-N-K, the letter U. Link U increases your referrals and conversions with automated and personalized digital follow-up. Link U's ultimate follow-up machine and done-for-you follow-up services can save you time, money, and energy by putting your follow-up on autopilot. And that's something we all need. This is how you get in front of your SOI and past clients and all different types of leads to get that consistency that you've been looking for. You want to learn more? Then you've got to attend one of their webinars hosted by LinkU's CEO and my friend, Wesley Rocha, where he reveals his follow-up secrets and the fastest way to double your real estate business. You can register now at www.followuplab.com. Trust me, this is not something you want to miss. Register now at followuplab.com. Lab Coat Agents Podcast.